You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 23rd day of April 2012. And for those keeping track at home, yes, this is a Monday edition of the podcast, as the podcast will be switching to Mondays from now on for various personal reasons, but also because on Fridays, which I usually used to prepare for the podcast, I'm now writing the international forecaster for Bob Chapman. So I am now going to be doing the podcasts every Monday, starting from this week. So look for future editions of this podcast each Monday morning in your iTunes or pod reader of choice. And once again, if you're not signed up to the RSS feeds so you get this podcast delivered directly to you as soon as it's available, please do so at CorbettReport.com slash subscribe, where you can find all of the RSS feeds for all of the individual podcast feeds or for the everything feeds. You can get every single article, podcast episode, video, and or interview as they become available. And on that note, of course, yes, I am writing the weekly Bob Chapman International Forecaster newsletter editorial on Saturdays, as I said before on this podcast and in the radio program. And yes, Bob Chapman has confirmed that I can start sending that out to my subscribers at CorbettReport.com. So subscribers to CorbettReport.com will have noticed in the last 24 hours or 48 hours, that should be, I sent out the first edition of this International Forecaster for the subscribers. So you will have received that in your email inbox and of course if you're not receiving the Corbett Report subscriber emails even though you are paying at least 100 Japanese yen a month to become a subscriber please let me know and I'll be happy to sort that out with you and of course also in the uh, bottom of each subscriber email there is uh, links to d- discounts on the DVDs uh, Corbett Report DVDs so just for being a subscriber you can get a 25% discount on all the DVDs and on that note, uh, for the subscribers who have written in to wonder about the uh, the newsletter, every month I will still be sending out the quote-unquote the full newsletter with the recommended reading and viewing and the subscriber-only video and other goodies. But on the weekly basis now, every single week you'll be receiving my International Forecaster newsletter summary. So once again, if you have not yet become a subscriber to the Corbett Report, for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, that's about $1.40 US a month, less than a cup of coffee, you can become a subscriber at corbettreport.com support. And I certainly hope you will, because once again, this media is brought to you by you and it is completely listener supported. So once again, thank you to all of you out there for your help. And on that note, let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 227 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Regulation Trap. Listeners to episode 107 of Corbett Report Radio, which aired on the 10th of April 2012 and featured as our guest Dr. Anthony J. Hall of the University of Lethbridge, may have been taken aback by a little moment of discord and disagreement between myself and Dr. Hall on the issue of Fukushima, the nuclear industry, and regulation. You know, an aspect of it is the nuclear energy industry, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is a corporate welfare bomb in, in a sense. It, it, it's, you know, to privatize, to treat this business as if it, it, it can be appropriately privatized when, when it represents such an enormous danger for all humanity and all life on the planet. That, that, that is, is madness. I mean, this deregulatory approach that started with the Reagan-Thatcher years, uh, you know, we see it in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we see the banking uh, frauds and the horrific uh, financial debacle. This uh, idea that uh, we keep deregulating and, and expect the industries to regulate themselves is madness. And Fukushima surely epitomizes that. It epitomizes this uh, uh, corporate takeover, this corporatism. Of course, you know, the fascist system in Italy was referred to as corporatism. And, and in a certain sense, national socialism was sort of socialism for the corporations, which would be included in the war machine. And of course, you know, Ford and ITT and General Electric and 
But but the thing that I, I agree with you on so much of your analysis, but the thing that gets to me is that the people who are often calling for more regulation as a, as a way of solving this problem are, are the ones that somehow believe that this system came about just a, a, a by chance and we could somehow set up some utopian system where the regulatory bodies with the authority to step in and do something about this wouldn't be owned by the very multi-billionaire, you know, power player multinational corporations that they're supposedly watching over. I don't think that's... That's just something that happened by chance. I think that's something that's very much uh, well, hardwired into the system. It didn't happen by chance. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, it's it's an enormous issue, and I, I kind of think there's so many so many things that we have been working on in common. For instance, well, we'll leave it there because at that point the conversation began to spin off into another direction, and we started talking about a different topic. But I would like to use this podcast episode to circle back and to expand out on what I was trying to get at there with my refutation of Dr. Hall's point. And this is not meant to be taken as, as something about Dr. Hall specifically. Of course, we're just using this as a jumping off point for the conversation, and I really don't know where he would stand on the thesis of this episode. But just expanding on my own point there, I want to flesh out in greater detail the underlying point that I was trying to reach there, that that really the regulation, the cry for regulation as a way to solve the problems is in fact what leads to the greater prob the creation of greater problems itself. And that can be a difficult concept to grasp because it is certainly counterintuitive. If the problem is people breaking laws and, uh, and cutting corners and doing terrible things, then what we need is people to watch over them to make sure they don't do that. And that makes sense in a certain straightforward logic, but certainly does not make sense when you start to realize that of course, when you create positions that are going to be the regulatory bodies that watch over the industry or or whatever it may be, of course, that's where the real criminals are going to try to infest in order to get their control over the system. And thus, they can then punish their, their competitors and, and promote themselves and give themselves a free pass. And I'm not making this assertion lightly or just saying that this is just something that occasionally happens. I think this is hardwired into pretty much every regulatory body we can possibly think of. And uh, today we're going to go over some various examples of that. And let's start with the nuclear energy industry itself, which of course is regulated, quote unquote, both in Japan and in the United States. And this is a point that I was discussing last year with Arnie Gunderson, who was talking about the fall of the nuclear priesthood. Um, here in the U.S., we've got the industry trade group, NEI. And when they come to the table, they uh, carry a lot of political weight. The Congress um, has never approved a commissioner who NEI the nuclear trade group didn't approve before it got to Congress. So there's a, I don't think the, um, the, the people of Japan should be uh, uh, feeling as if they're unique, that uh, TEPCO had a, uh, a stranglehold on the government of Japan that didn't happen elsewhere in the world. It, it is happening here in the U.S., and, um, and it's a concern. Uh, it, it, uh, I, and I also believe it happens in France, and um, and and also in China. That that's a remarkable fact, and and I wasn't even aware of that. So so there has never been a, a nuclear commissioner who has not been a, a approved beforehand by the the industry itself. I mean, what does that speak to the the relationship between those uh, the industry and the regulators that are supposedly watching over them? Actually, it, it, I shouldn't say never since 1994. So for the last 17 years, there hasn't been a commissioner that hasn't been uh, vetted by the um, uh, by the Nuclear Energy Institute. You know, we had a, a senator here, Pete Dominici, uh, from uh, Arizona or New Mexico, and he's he wrote a book about how he forced the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to be more industry compliant. Um, he met with the uh, head of the uh, nuclear, the, com the, the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, and and um, it was a woman at the time, and she said that uh, Shirley Jackson, and she said that um, uh, he forced her to speed up licensing because he threatened to cut the budget, and uh, in half. Uh, and uh, and he actually brags about that in his book. So this is not something that's um, um, 
unknown to the public. It's actually in, in print. Uh, we've also seen it um, recently. Uh, there's a commissioner, Merrifield, who, uh, while he was a commissioner, his, his time on the commission was winding down. He went looking for work, and he contacted on, on his personal office phone the people who he was regulating, and he said, hey, I need a job. Um, after he got a job, he made decisions as a commissioner that favored the company he was going to work for. So this is not a, a, a situation unique to Japan. This is a situation that's, um, that's global. The, Barry Commoner had a, uh, an expression years and years ago, back in the 60s or early 70s, and he, he used the term a nuclear priesthood. And uh, it has become that, you know, the, the, the people that run these reactors um, seem to think that the public has no opinion that's um, reasonable in the, um, in the long-term decisions about nuclear safety. And when they don't get their way with the regulator, they run over to Congress and, and apply pressure. And the same thing was true at TEPCO. Once again, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com, and just as he ended in that clip saying that the same is true of TEPCO, I think we could safely say the same is true of many, many other companies in many, many other industries besides. And once again, we have been concentrating on the nuclear energy industry as just one example of how this is done, but we can see quite clearly that when the energy industry controls who gets to be appointed the chairman of the group that's supposed to regulate the industry, it's not a fair process, and the regulation that results therefrom is not going to be regulation in any meaningful sense of the word, unless, of course, you happen to be an owner of a nuclear energy company, in which case I'm sure it will all work out in your favor. And that's quite transparent. Ultimately, a five-year-old could understand how that works. But unfortunately, people still get locked into the mindset that somehow government is there not as a trap to, uh, to lure people into thinking complacently that everything is fine and that the government is watching over everything because they're swaddling everyone in their loving arms. Instead of the real I image, which is uh, a place that's infested by criminals who want to get away with what they want to get away with, and they'll find levers of power through which they can accomplish that. Once again, that sounds like a very large and outlandish claim, and we have only been looking at the en energy industry so far, so perhaps that seems a bit uh, too much of a claim to make at this point. So let's look at uh, various other aspects of the way this can work. And certainly one aspect that we can probably all relate to if you've been listening to the Corbett Report for any length of time or following the alternative media, you will know about the various whistleblowers who have brought very, very, very serious claims of very serious grievances about what is taking place in secret in various government agencies to the attention of the government, who then investigates itself and usually ends up firing the whistleblower. And again, I think this is not a very difficult process to wrap your minds around. Of course, if the criminals are in control of the system, then the system is not going to prosecute itself and find itself criminal. It's going to find the people who are trying to blow the whistle to be the criminals. And that is something that has made absolutely crystal clear in the incredible memoir of Sibel Edmonds that is now available for pre-order, by the way. So I certainly hope people will check into that, follow the notes from the documentation section of today's episode to pre-order your copy of Classified Woman. Once again, I hope people are supporting Sibel Edmonds and will look into her case. And uh, having read a pre-copy uh, pre of this book, I can tell you it's incredible the types of things that were going on in the translation department that she was working in in the FBI. And of course, what she did, thinking that the system was not corrupt, was to report up the chain of command, as she was told, as the, as the process was supposed to be. But of course, when the people up the chain of command are involved in the, uh, in the crimin criminality themselves, of course there is no investigation investigation going to happen and ultimately she got ran ran right out of the FBI and that's exactly what happens to the real whistleblowers in the real com organizations when they try to use the so-called regulations and regulatory bodies that are supposedly there to supervise and make sure these types of things don't go on so that is a very very important example of the way that this happens and transpires but uh, once again, I will have Sibel Edmonds on Corbett Report Radio later this month to talk about that very issue. So I certainly hope that you'll uh, be there for that. It's going to be a very interesting conversation on Monday, April 30th edition of Corbett Report Radio. But let's try a different industry then. Let's try the, ec the economy 
because it has become something of conventional wisdom among certain circles in recent years that the economic meltdown and collapse that took place most spectacularly in 2008, but which of course was building up for many years before then, was a result of deregulation. The report says the people who should have done something included government regulators. On and on and on, regulator after regulator, they either chose not to act or turned a blind eye to what was actually going on. Also blamed, the giant bonuses paid to Wall Street bosses. Compensation systems in an environment of intense competition and light regulation rewarded the big bet where the payoff on the upside could be huge and the downside ignored. The first issue has to do with all of these uh, credit default swaps that were unregulated. And back when people were calling for regulation of the market, the Federal Reserve in the United States said there was no need for regulation. And the whole idea behind the credit default swaps was to actually lower risk because uh, it, the credit default swap is like an insurance policy. And instead of lowering risk because there was no regulation of these, the market, nobody knows who has them. They're all over the world. And uh, we're in a situation where had we had a central clearinghouse or some type of regulatory body overseeing this particular kind of security, we might not be in the situation that we're in right now. The U.S. economy, to the extent that we still have one, is based on the New Deal model, which is a highly regulated kind of industrial capitalism. And this is what we had starting in 1933. Now, for the past 40 years, since the coming of Nixon, more or less, reactionary Republican administrations have been steadily dismantling that entire edifice. So now we've got no more regulation and we've got no more industry. So what we've got left is this casino gambling speculative derivatives paradise that Geithner thinks is is so great. And of course, that's not viable. So I wouldn't call it state capitalism. I would actually call it the New Deal model. And to the extent that you have that in China and, and to some degree in Russia, that is viable. That will work. And there, there are other versions that will work. What will not work is this free market fetishism, uh, which is the thing that's caused the present, uh, the present depression, is the fruits of deregulation, privatization, union busting, and the free market, as they say. Oh, thank you, Webster. I've seen the light. I've seen the light. I understand now. The problem is is this deregulation and the solution is the New Deal. Let's go back to 1933 and FDR and let's become more like China, which is one of these great proponents of this in regulated industrial capitalism, which which Webster's tar- talking about there. And uh, I, I get it now. The problem is there wasn't enough government and there was too much freedom. That's the issue. That's why the economy melted down. So then I guess the corollary of that would be that more government would be a good thing. And if there is more regulation, then obviously this problem would go away, right? Well, maybe not. We'll move to our second story, James, where our main two sources come from Washington'sBlog.com and also the EconomicCollapseBlog.com. Giant banks now 30% bigger than when Dodd-Frank financial reform law was passed, or the too-big-to-fail banks are now much bigger and much more powerful than ever. For years, many high-level economists and financial experts have said that unless we break up the giant banks, our economy will never recover, real reform will be blocked, and democracy and the rule of law will be corrupted. So how did the government respond to the financial crisis which started in 2007? let the giant banks get even bigger. As Bloomberg notes, the five banks that held assets equal to 43% of the U.S. economy in 07 before the financial crisis and the bank bailout now control assets that equal 56% of the U.S. economy. Bloomberg, quote, two years after Obama vowed to eliminate the danger of financial institutions becoming too big to fail, the nation's largest banks are bigger than they were before the credit crisis. Five banks, and of course it's the usual suspects, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Goldman Sachs. They held $8.5 trillion in assets at the end of 2011, equal to 56% of the U.S. economy. This according to our friends at the Federal Reserve. 
Five years earlier, before the financial crisis, the largest bank's assets amounted to 43% of the U.S. output. And now we're noting 56%, at least, on its face, on, on paper, what, what's being discussed openly that we know. Market participants believe that now nothing has changed, that too big to fail is fully intact. So said Gary Stern, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. This specter is eroding faith in Obama's pledge that taxpayer-funded bailouts are a thing of the past. It's also exposing him to criticism from Federal Reserve officials, Republicans, and Occupy Wall Street supporters who see the concentration of bank power as a threat to economic stability. As the articles go on, and in closing, it includes former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, some presidents of regional Federal Reserve banks have, have expressed criticism of too big to fail, but the most powerful federal bank, the New York Federal Reserve, and Bernanke's Federal Open Market Committee, as well as Tim Geithner's Treasury Department, have done everything possible to ensure that the giant banks become too bigger to fail. Now, clearly, there's a lot of information to go through, and I don't want to make this a little too easy by simply summing it all up in a, a simple little package with a pink bow on top. Obviously, there's a lot of information to consider when we are parsing this information that the Dodd-Frank bill that was supposed to reform the financial world and place even stricter governmental regulatory control on the economy is, in fact, making the bigger banks even bigger, as predicted. Uh, there's a lot to go through there, so so let's not jump to any conclusions, but as one example of the type of ridiculous nature of this this bill itself and what it represents, one can actually go to DodfrankSummary.com. Yes, there's an entire website that's devoted to following news about the Dodd-Frank Act and trying to explain what the Dodd-Frank is, Dodd-Frank Act is and what it says. Because just like all the other government regulations and regulatory bodies that are created in the wake of every scandal and problem, this one too is this lumbering giant behemoth that puts out this incredible monstrosity, this incredible architecture that's supposed to be this uh, this regulatory function of, of government that's going to actually prevent these, this from happening again, even though as that, uh, that article at Washington's blog, I think, points out very nicely, yes, no, in fact, it achieves the exact opposite. And in fact, the, uh, the problem is only growing bigger and bigger the more government we put on top of it, exactly as predicted. So, if we go to DodfrankSummary.com, you can find, for example, in the most recent post, as I sit here today, it's talking about a poll, uh, Dodd-Frank does not prevent too big to fail, where 57% of the public polled voted no on the question of whether or not the Dodd-Frank Act will actually prevent uh, big banks uh, uh, from getting too big to, to fail, so to speak. So uh, the public is not buying it. But perhaps more to the point, let's take a look at an interesting summary of Dodd-Frank criticism, which uh, they have under the headline, What the Media is Saying About the Act's Faults. And uh, they post a link to an interesting Economist uh, article. And of course, the Economist should always be, take, be taken with a grain of salt, given that it is a Rothschild's mouthpiece. But I would suggest you take a look at this article called Too Big Not to Fail, that starts out by saying, quote, Sections 404 and 406 of the Dodd-Frank Law of July 2010 add up to just a couple of pages. On October 31st last year, two of the agencies overseeing America's financial system turned those few pages into a form to be filled out by hedge funds and some other firms. That form ran to 192 pages. The cost of filling it out, according to an informal survey of hedge fund managers, will be $100,000 to $150,000 for each firm the first time it does it. After having done it once, those costs might drop to $40,000 in every later year. End quote. Well, that's just one example and obviously taken from the industry's uh, perspective of the type of monstrosity that's been created by the Dodd-Frank bill, but certainly it's something that should at least give one pause for thought about the overall rule that is being uh, demonstrated here, which is that when regulatory bodies are put in place to, to regulate an industry, all it does is create this mountain and monstrosity of bureaucracy through which the government can sink its tentacles into uh, industries in all sorts of different ways. And you better believe the big, big hedge funds, the ones that are in the pockets of the regulators and or the other way around, are not going to be having too much problems filling out their forms and getting it all approved. But any hedge fund that steps out of line 
any any player in the market who isn't doing what the uh, the other criminals in the gang want them to do will be prosecuted to the full and that's exactly the type of uh, the type of structure that is created in the wake of every scandal like this and an excellent excellent uh, visual representation of that comes from that economist article where they have the actual diagram the schematic of the different agencies that have been created to watch over the industry and how they interrelate to the other bodies that were already there and what they have authority over and how they relate to each other it's this unbelievable spider web of connections called caught in the web uh, an interesting little infographic that shows i think quite quite well that these bodies that are created to so-called solve the problems only make things that much more monstrously complex which cannot but add to the problems even if the bodies were there for the best of intentions and ruled over by the angels descended from heaven to rule over everything impartially and of course that itself is an absolute outright easily demonstrable lie as proven by well let's just take one tiny example one microcosm from which we can gain a perspective on the macrocosm so in uh, in 2011, I'm sorry, 2010, the Huffington Post noted a little problem with the head of the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which, among other things, was uh, seeking to put together new regulations on the derivatives market, which, as we know, has been a, a part, really part of the, the, the entire financial fraud that's just decimated the system and they're posting a story from nytimes.com gary gensler former goldman sachs partner leads derivatives reform effort as cftc chair and it notes quote former goldman partner gary gensler graham bowley writes is emerging as one of the nation's arch reformers pushing to impose some of the most stringent new financial regulations in history and as the head of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the leading contender to oversee the complex derivatives contracts that played a central role in the financial crisis and, in turn, the Great Recession, he is in a position to influence the outcome, end quote. Ooh, he's an arch-reformer who's also a Goldman Sachs insider who spent 18 years at the firm. Yep, he's going to really be that arch-reformer who's going to put that regulatory body into place that's going to really crack down on people like Goldman Sachs, his old boss. Sure, sure. Well, if you're a bit incredulous at that, well gold star for you of course there is something to be suspicious about there but let's follow it up so what happens with gary gensler and the cftc well even disregarding the jp morgan silver market manipulation and the bombshell testimony of the whistleblowers and and all of that that uh, that's an entire history in and of itself that i think people should probably look into if they haven't yet done so and i'll put a link in the uh, show notes to an interview i did on that subject a couple of years ago but even disregarding that we can even turn to the recent MF Global debacle, which I'm sure most of you have heard about, and Gary Gensler's role in that. This the same Gary Gensler, the arch reformer that the New York Times was writing about via the Huffington Post there in 2010. Well, along comes this scandal in 2011, in December of last year. Gary Gensler, CFTC chairman, hit over ties to MF Global's John Corzine. Quote, Alabama Senator Richard Shelby and his GOP colleagues aggressively pounced on the Commodities Future Trading Commission on Tuesday, blasting its chairman over the regulator's handling of the bankrupt brokerage MF Global and relationship with its former CEO, John Corzine. At a Senate Banking Committee hearing, Shelby slammed the commission chairman, Gary Gensler, over his ties with Corzine, previously the Democratic governor of New Jersey and a senator. Gensler and Corzine were colleagues at the investment bank Goldman Sachs 14 years ago. The commission is searching for $1.2 billion in client funds lost by MF Global, another source of controversy for a regulator that fueled GOP criticism. End quote. Oh, yes, so Gensler, the ex-Goldman gang member, is going to be supposedly watching over the other ex-Goldman gang member, John Corzine. And, oh, yes, he's going to come down strictly on him, isn't he? And so, of course, we see how this perpetuates itself and exactly how this works. Here's the microcosmic example. The, the people, the well-connected insiders, get into the positions to be the regulators who then regulate over their old buddies. It's not much of a, a complex thing to figure out how this doesn't 
ever work. And uh, and people only have to look at the Obama Saya's appointments of uh, the insiders to once again the FDA and places like that from companies like Monsanto. So it's just more of the same over and over again. The criminals are are watching over the prisons, the uh, foxes over the hen house, as it were. And uh, and and if you want to follow up with Gensler and the continuing tale of the uh, CFTC chairman slash Goldman Insider, we have this from businessweek.com just a couple of weeks ago. Gensler to remain as CFTC chairman past expiration date tomorrow. Quote, Gary Gensler's term as chairman of the U.S. agency writing regulations required by the Dodd-Frank Act for the global swaps market ends tomorrow. All the same, his ability to craft rules for companies including Goldman Sachs Group Inc. and J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. could extend at least until next year. End quote. So that's the first paragraph of that Bloomberg article noting that Gensler is going to stay on past his term in order to continue regulating Goldman Sachs, etc. And let's let's just do a, a little experiment here. Let's see. It's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. So that would be the 12th paragraph. In the 12th paragraph of this 13-paragraph story, they just slip in as a little side note. Oh, yes, by the way, Gensler used to be at Goldman Sachs. So one wonders what side the uh, the business media plays in all of this. Uh, it's unfortunately just all one big insider-connected system. So here is the microcosm. Here is the example that proves the rule. Here it is. It's people like Gensler, the Goldman Sachs insider, getting into positions at the very regulatory bodies that are supposedly going to regulate Goldman Sachs. It is a transparent fraud. It is a sham. And no one should be buying it. And when it's explained like that, no one does buy it. Everyone understands what the problems are in a system like that. And yet, for some reason, they don't tend to mention that till the 12th paragraph of a 13-paragraph article. So that's exactly how the system works. That's exactly how it propagates. And my thesis for today is that's exactly how the system is designed to work, or should I say designed to fail. And uh, and fail failure can even be a, a poor choice of understanding for this uh, this entire concept because it puts into people's minds the idea that, oh, look, oh, the regulators failed again. If only we could get a regulator that could do it properly, then it would work. The problem is more fundamental than that. The problem is that the regulatory bodies are designed by and for the criminals they're supposed to regulate. Once again, this is an important concept, and it relates right back to that problem-reaction-solution Hegelian dialectic that we've looked at time and time again in the past in contexts such as the false flag terror events which are perpetrated by the governments in order to blame on their enemies, in order to get the reaction that they want from the public, in order to justify things like illegal invasions and aggressions in countries that haven't attacked the uh, the country in question, etc., etc. And I think a lot of people now are finally beginning to understand why that works, and the old canard, why would the government attack itself, isn't quite holding the same sway over the public that it did in years past, which is a good thing. But we have to understand how this works in other contexts as well. Well, for example, in such things as the economic collapse, which can be precipitated by the insiders who are going to gain the power that comes through such things as the Dodd-Frank Reform Act, quote-unquote, that create new regulatory bodies that are themselves infested with the same regulators who come from the insider structure. Once again, a simple concept that sounds perhaps difficult at first, first blush, but in fact is extremely easy to grasp. And I think a great way of getting a handle on this concept is from an article that was recently posted to John Rappaport's blog at johnrappaport.wordpress.com. It runs under the headline, It Takes a Village to Ruin Everything. And it starts by saying, quote, In 1996, Hillary Clinton's book, It Takes a Village, appeared. In it, she argued that a whole community must solve the problem of raising a child. Of course, this was pretentious nonsense. It runs parallel to the idea that no entrepreneur can prosper without infrastructure that is built with public money, and therefore the entrepreneur and his output should be the property of the state. Starting with the individual child, Clinton offers a solution that encompasses a town or a community or even a city, or who knows, maybe a planet. But one, the original problem isn't solved, if it was a problem to begin with, and two, the solution is an artifact designed to regulate a larger environment. To put it another way, Clinton's model makes it necessary to put everyone under the gun because a child may be a problem. 
Problem. 50 small fish might be wiped out by allowing water from rivers to irrigate farmland. Solution. We must consign the whole valley of farms to eternal drought. If the free market gives birth to 12 million companies and corporations, this creates the problem of uninspected potential crimes. Therefore, we have to put the world under the regulatory eye and nose of agencies whose ultimate objective is to wipe out those enterprises or weaken them to the point at which they will be absorbed in much larger corporations until, finally, there are 400 megacorporations that are responsible for 80% of all international trade and production. Then and only then can we feel safe. Then and only then can we know that government will exercise proper control over business on planet Earth. Of course, when 400 corporations do constitute the productive engine of the Earth, they will have bought off governments so that they can do exactly as they like. They will partner with the governments to share the spoils, which was part of the idea in the first place. Again, the method is, whatever the size of the original purported problem, make the solution bigger and more encompassing. End quote. Which I think is a pretty apt summary of the, the problem in total as, it, as we've seen it so far today. And whether that be the nuclear energy industry or even in the public sector, people who are trying to blow the whistle on government corruption like Sibel Edmonds, or whether it's uh, people who are pointing to the uh, economic collapse, it certainly applies, doesn't it? The method is to take one problem and to make it a regulatory framework through which the people who created that problem can rule over all of the uh, potential solutions to that problem, which is an even greater expansion of their powers as manifested absolutely crystal clear in the fact that the regulations imposed on the banks after in the wake of their banking scandal and the too-big-to-fail debacle is only to make the banks even bigger. It fails on its face. But let's look at more, yet more examples, because I know this is a, a concept that people can get in the abstract, but people still feel are is incredulous. Well, it can't always be the case. It can't always be that all these regulatory bodies are inherently corrupt. Well, not necessarily, not, certainly not from an a priori standpoint, but once you start investigating, it's difficult to find a regulatory body that actually does its work in each and every case. And once again, it's because... The foxes are in charge of the hen house. So let's take a look at another example. And this one, again, comes from the realm of the economy. And we're going to take a look at the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And this Regulatory Reform Act, too, was put in place in the wake of a major financial scandal, specifically the accounting scandals of Enron, Tyco, and WorldCom in 2000-2001. In, so in 2002, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act came along and really rewrote all the rules of how uh, companies were supposed to report what was going on so that we would never see something like Enron happen again. One little problem with that the people who were writing the rules and creating the very software that was supposed to put companies in, in the position of being able to comply with those rules were in on a much bigger scheme. This is something that whistleblower Richard Andrew Grove has pointed out at great length, and which was expertly detailed in 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline, which is available for free viewing online, and was summarized in my film literature in the New World Order episode on The Insider. 2020 Hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline, is the 2009 documentary by filmmaker Paul Verge of Divergent Films. It tells the story of Richard Andrew Grove, a former enterprise software sales rep who blew the whistle on a massive Wall Street corruption scheme centering on the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in the wake of the Enron-Tyco-Worldcom accounting scandals to regulate and restore confidence in the financial services industry. The act requires certain financial service companies to buy specific compliance software, software that would theoretically make it impossible for Wall Street executives to erase any data related to their transactions. But what Richard Grove discovered was that the software he was selling the very software that was supposed to stop fraud from occurring, in fact contained a backdoor that allowed that fraud to happen in a way that was completely untraceable. NASD was looking at our product and, and they wanted to use it internally. And one of the guys across the table says to me, hey, wait a minute, 
this product has a back door because right here where you're supposed to take this information and put it on the write once read many storage which is a type of permanent storage he said there's this jar file and you can delete the jar file and then there's no evidence of that transaction whatsoever so he was showing me across the table that there's a loophole there's a back door in the software that allows nefarious transactions to go on and subsequently they didn't buy the software they're like this is this isn't worth the money this is this is not what it's supposed to be and you should do something about that now I had management from my side in the meeting and so I went to my managers afterwards and I'm like what's this all about and why wh what's going on with this and I was told not to talk about it given the staggering enormity of the information he had Grove attempted to blow the whistle via the whistleblower protection provisions of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act he even warned the Securities and Exchange Commission directly of what was happening, but they not only failed to act on his information, they actually went and bought the very backdoor software he had warned them about for their own record-keeping. A surprise, because I went to them expecting to take this evidence and at least have them look at it and say, there's something here or there's nothing here. But when they said, you know, you could get in trouble for sharing this with us, we don't really want to know about this. If it's going on and people are at risk, then, you know, kind of so be it. And provably afterwards, soon thereafterwards, the SEC released a press release announcing that they were using Legato's email extender product to guarantee the integrity of their financial transactions and their records and, the, and all the auditing and all the audit trails that need to be there to, uh, to work as, in a transparent manner as they're supposed to do. Even after proving all of his allegations in a court of law to the satisfaction of the presiding judge, his whistleblower case was eventually dismissed on a fraudulent statute of limitations technicality. That level of corruption is almost unthinkable to the average non-criminally minded person, which is why the non-criminally minded person is so eager to call for more government regulation in the wake of every problem and scandal, because they think like non-criminals, and they think other non-criminals will be running the scheme. But imagine if a truly psychopathic and determined criminal got into a position to be able to regulate the industry that they're in and that they want to succeed. The scale of what they will be able to accomplish is almost unthinkable. And certainly, if people are interested in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and how that plays into Richard Grove's story and what he ended up doing to try to get the word out through the media and how he was shut down through that venue, etc., etc., once again, I highly recommend 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline, which gives a big picture understanding of these types of problems and how they are well, created and then uh, solved, quote-unquote, by the uh, so-called regulations. Once again, this is not something that's coincidental. It's not something that just occasionally happens. This is something that is hardwired into the system. And the problem then becomes finding a real solution, because obviously the solutions that are laid out before us by the criminals are not going to be the solutions that will really get us out of the main problems. So, for example, when we look at the economic context and the, the financial collapse, the, uh, we have these two sides of the story. We have the, the Webster Tarpleys of the world who are crying out for more government involvement and some FDR-like dictator to come along and put the economy in order and uh, make of that what you will. And then on the other side, we have the people saying, well, it's, it's just we need more deregulation along the lines of Reagan and Thatcher. And we, we get put in this dialectic where it's a choice between this side of the argument and that side of the argument, as if there is no other possible way of thinking about the argument. So one thing that most people have absolutely no concept of is that when we're talking about these, this regulation versus deregulation debate, of course, we're not talking about the fundamental underlying nature of the way in which the economy is already inherently regulated. There is already very, very much a government hand in that economy that is creating the conditions for the problem itself. And unless we understand that, we cannot hope to understand how to overcome this problem. So let's see if we can break through that paradigm of conditioning, which teaches us that the debate is really between those who want this particular type of regulation and those who want that particular type of deregulation, and look at the fundamental underlying issue, which is that the markets themselves are not free, and they have not been free for a very, very long time. And this is what creates the conditions that made the recent collapse possible. 
So on that note, let's turn to a very interesting commentary that Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio did back in January of 2010 about the myth of the free markets. Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing very well. I hope that you had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and a Happy New Decade to you. I have decided to start this decade by attempting to blow away some of the clouds of unclarity that surround a very, very central issue when it comes to talking about a free, prosperous, virtuous, and happy society. See if the following has ever happened to you. So some disaster occurs. Uh, the banks go bankrupt. Uh, derivatives market goes uh, bust. The real estate market goes bust or something like that. Uh, executives are overpaid, whatever that means. When these kinds of disasters occur in the economy, every piece of socialist rabble in the universe says, aha, you see, the free market doesn't work. We need more control, more regulation, more this, more that. And every free marketer in the world says, no, 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 no. You see, that's not the free market. That's the result of government regulation. And you have to go and do all this research. And oh, just nobody believes you. And this is a real uh, problem when it comes to having coherent disagreements. I mean, disagreements are great. But let's at least have coherent disagreements about what a free market Actually, it's like, let's, let's lay down the foundation so that we can understand it moving forward and have productive disagreements, which means a disagreement that leads to wisdom and knowledge. A free market is actually very simple. A free market is very simple. And don't worry about thinking about it in terms of economics. Think about it in terms of dating. What does a free market in dating mean? Well, it means no kidnapping. It means no chloroforming and throwing in the back of a van. It means no dropping down a well and requesting a date in order to be pulled out. It means no assaults, no rape, no killing, whatever. We understand that a free market in dating simply means that you can you know, how you doing? You can be in as uh, try to be as attractive as you want, but you can't use force uh, to um, uh, to get what you want in terms of dating or sex or whatever. What does a free market look like in terms of uh, marriage? Well, it means that the government can't force you to marry, uh, that your family can't force you to marry, that your boyfriend can't force you to marry, that it is you know you can get down on one knees, you can cross your fingers and hope for the best as I did, and got the best. But uh, you can try any number of things in order to achieve your goals, but you can't use, uh, use force. What does it mean to have a free market in terms of finding a job? Well, it means that no Gestapo thug in jackboots can come up, put a gun to your neck, and say, you must work as a dishwasher or a CEO. It simply means that you're free to pursue job opportunities wherever they arise. You can create your own jobs if none are available to your taking, to your liking. So that's what a free market, and you can think of this in many, many different areas. What does it mean to say uh, there's a free market in newspapers? Well, it means that nobody's going to force you to buy a newspaper or not buy a newspaper. What does it mean to have um, a free market on the Internet? It means you can start a blog uh, and, and try and attract uh, attention from people, but you can't force people to come and read your blog uh, on, you know, and throw them in jail if they don't. So we all understand what a free market is. It is voluntary interactions without the use of force and property rights, uh, property rights in terms of uh, uh, if you make something or earn it, then it's yours. And fundamentally, we understand that property rights derive from the right of self-ownership or the, the reality of self-ownership, right? I mean, we know that it's right because the woman owns her body and uh, controls access to it and so on. Uh, and so self-ownership leads to property rights, uh, property rights uh, and voluntary interactions lead to uh, or are the basis of a free market. So that's all a free market is. It's no different in the realm of economics than it is in the realm of dating or school or newspapers or education or careers or anything like that. It is simply the free exchange of value, subjectively defined, of course. It's the free exchange of value without force. That's, that's all a free market really is. Now, why is it that these annoying free market people are continually telling you that what, the, what we live in now is not a free market? Well, fundamentally, uh, my argument, my strong argument, is that it is for two uh, basic reasons. There are two things that are fundamentally missing from modern economics uh, that mean we don't, we don't even live close to a free market. We, we live in a kind of corporate, fascistic, centrally planned, largely centrally controlled um, form of uh, economics, uh, economic disorganization. And these are not things that people generally know about or understand. It's just so much part of our economic culture that we don't even really think about it.
And I'm not going to take the stateless society perspective or the agorist perspective or the voluntarist perspective or even the libertarian perspective. Let's just say for the sake of argument, we need a government to protect property rights and respond to crimes against property or person, uh, fraud or whatever, right? So let's just say that. I don't want to get into the anarchist debate here, but let's just say we got a small government to protect property and to respond to threats of violence or actions of violence. What is the government specifically not doing in, in those areas that it's doing now that violate every conceivable principle, the most essential elemental principles of a free market? Well, number one, in a free market, the government does not control or monopolize currency. In a free market, the government does not monopolize or control currency. I know. It's a mind-blowing thing. How could it not control? Well, historically, at least in the United States, this wasn't the case. You had competing currencies, and the currencies arose out of banks issuing checks and all those kinds of good things. And it took quite some work for the government to take over the printing and control of currency in the United States, as it was the case around the world. But when you think about it, there's no conceivable reason why the government must or even should control currency. Because currency is nothing magical about money. There's nothing magical about a dollar bill or a gold coin or a silver coin or anything like that. They're just medium of, it's just a medium of exchange. It is a good, right? If you buy a car with a gold brick, there's no fundamental difference between the car and a gold brick when it comes to what they are. They're both commodities. They're both things that are useful to you, right? The car to get around and the gold brick to buy stuff. They're both just commodities that you have, that you use for a variety of things. Money is a medium of exchange, for sure, but so is the internet, right? Uh, the government doesn't have to run every aspect of the internet, though the internet is a medium of exchange of value, we assume, otherwise there's no reason to go on it. Money is just like the internet. Money is like the roads. It's like the rail system. It is simply a medium of transportation and exchange of goods. And for the government to monopolize it is the most fundamental violation of a free market because clearly to invent a currency is not to defraud people. Now, to invent a counterfeit currency is, but that's a whole different... It's like saying that to sell a stolen car is to participate in a theft, even if unknowingly. But to sell... It's not, it's not the same to sell a stolen car as it is to sell just a regular car. And so the creation of currency, the competition of various currencies is fundamental to a free market. And there's no conceivable way in which if I come up with Steph Bucks, uh, my own personal currency, and want people to adopt it, I'm clearly not initiating violence against anyone. And assuming I'm not initiating fraud against anyone, it's perfectly morally fine and acceptable that I come up with my own currency and you come up with your own currency and may the best currencier uh, win. So the fact that the government controls and monopolizes currency is the most fundamental violation of property because you're forcing everybody else to use this ridiculous fiat paper money currency. You are using violence to pretend to prevent people from competing in a legitimate sphere of economic activity, which is the creation of just another good and service called a medium of exchange, money. Money is just a good and a service like everything else. There's no reason to have any specific exclusion for it in any particular society. Of course, why governments want to control money is obvious, because they get to uh, steal from everyone by uh, printing money, by um, uh, typing whatever they want into their own bank accounts, right? I mean, if you could type whatever you want into your own bank account and have everybody else foot the bill, wouldn't you be happy, right? Although technically you're footing the bill as well, but to a much smaller degree than what you're gaining. So that's really, really, really important. So anywhere where you see a government monopoly over currency, you know that massive theft is occurring, right? Because the government's just going to print money uh, and it's going to cause inflation, which is going to erode uh, the, um, uh, the savings of people, uh, which is going to lessen the incentive to have savings, which is going to lessen the accumulation of capital and thus slow down and destroy economic growth, which we can see happening now in the long run. And there's a reason why, since the creation of the Federal Reserve in the United States in 1913, the U.S. dollar has lost over 95% of its value because people just keep typing whatever they want into their own bank accounts and everybody else loses that proportion of value thereby. And it's a, inflation is a crippling and destructive, it's a crushing 
tax, particularly on the poor, uh, because um, by eroding the value of everybody's dollar, uh, it, uh, it hurts the poor most of all, because the poor have the greatest proportion of fixed expenses, right? How much does a billionaire pay for his house relative to a guy on the poverty line playing, paying for his apartment, right? So where inflation hits your fixed expenses, it hits the poor worst of all. And it is the most disgustingly um, regressive tax that can be imagined. And uh, it is the most fundamental violation of a free market. So that's number one. Number two is uh, interest rates. Right. So remember, money is just a good. Money is just a good. It's just a service. It's like a car. It's like the Internet. It's like a shirt. It's like anything else that you find valuable. Money is just a medium of exchange, like language. So like everything, it has a price, right? If something has value, then generally it has a price if it has economic value. And what is the price of money? Well, the price of money is interest rates, right? And interest rates reflect the fact that we are mortal and therefore we prefer things sooner rather than later because later means we're dead and don't really get to enjoy them. And so in the same way, you can rent a car and you pay a price to have the exclusive use of that car for a certain amount of time. You can rent money and you pay to have the exclusive use of that money for a certain amount of time. And the price that you pay to rent money is called interest rates. Now, interest rates are so fundamentally intrinsic to the productive operation of a free market, free market that it, it's second only to currency and, and really can't be, you can't overstate how important interest rates are to the uh, correct functioning of a free market, to the productive uh, functioning of a free market. Because interest rates are a huge signal, right? So if people are saving more, if they're putting more and more money in the bank, then uh, interest rates are going to go down because there's more money available to be loaned. Wherever there's a greater supply of something, its price goes down. So if people are saving a lot of money, um, then businesses get the same signal to expand because it means that people are going to save and then they're going to spend later. If people are spending a lot of money and not saving, then the price of money, because it's in scarce supply, is going to go up. What that means is that businesses should not expand, should consolidate, should maybe even contract. And this goes to many, many different levels, but uh, it, it's a huge signal to where and how and in what manner resources, economic resources within society should be allocated. Should businesses expand or contract? Should they hire? Should they lay off? Should they maintain their current level of employment? All of this is signaled in a fundamental way by, uh, by interest rates. And I mean, again, that's just one of many, many examples of the function of interest rates. But if there is not a free market competition about interest rates in the realm of interest rates, then there's nothing even remotely approaching a free market, right? So, of course, in the United States, the interest rates fundamentally are set by the Federal Reserve, is set by the central banks. This is the case for almost all of the econ uh, economies in the world. If currency is socialized, is, is, is turned into a fascistic arm of state control, if interest rates are turned into a fascistic arm of state control, you do not have a free market. You don't have a free market. You don't have anything close to a free market. You may have some vestiges of a free market, but not for long, right? Because when you, when you socialize currency and interest rates, it's like decapitating some guy's head. And okay, you know, a second after you decapitated his head, the heart is still beating, but that does not mean that he's a healthy guy. And once you've socialized, currency and interest rates once you've turned those into another arm of state power, the central arms of state power. You may have some vestiges of a free market for a time or of, of, of trade, but uh, it's continually decaying. Now, of course, when the government takes control of currency, it has to take control of interest rates because the government is going to immediately start printing its own money, typing whatever it wants into its own bank account. When the government does that, interest rates go up. Why? Because the value of each dollar is being diluted, which means that the dollars that you pay back in the future are going to be worth a lot less than the dollars that you're borrowing now. The interest rates have to rise to cover that. So if the interest rate is 5%, but the dollar is losing 10% of its value every year, your interest rate goes immediately to 15% to cover the 10% loss of value over the next year. Right? Like if you rent a car and you say, I'm going to repeatedly drive my car into a brick wall, this rented car into a brick wall, and then I'm going to return the dented and smoking ruin to you, clearly you're going to have to pay just a little bit more because you're lowering the value of the car 
while you're renting it, to say the least. So interest rates will immediately go up when the government starts overprinting money, which means that the government doesn't actually make that much. So the moment that the government takes over the currency, it has to almost immediately take over interest rates so that it can print its own money and then put a cap on interest rates so that other people uh, end up paying the bill down the road. So I, I can go into this in more detail if people should be interested by any chance. But I really wanted to point this out. Please send this video around to people who are confused about the free market. The only thing you really can't do in a free market is kill and steal and obviously defraud. And uh, everything else is, is open season, right? And so I just really, really wanted to point that out, that the systems that we're looking at that are in place at the moment are largely fascistic with fascism uh, and communism uh, comes um, a corporate toadyism or corporatism, This is always the case. As soon as the government gets control of the money supply and it gets control of the interest rates, then it can bestow massive godlike economic favors upon certain companies or, or corporations who then fawn for its favor and pay for uh, citizens to get elected who are going to favor the corporation's interests. And the corporation trails after uh, the state and its power like sharks trail after a pirate boat forcing plump people to walk off planks. And so I just hope that you understand that if you see this, and please send this around to people who are confused about this, when you're looking at all of the mess and ruin that is going on, in the economy today. Fundamentally, fundamentally, fundamentally look at two things, the money supply and interest rates. And if the government has got its nasty, deep, venomed little fangs deep into the jugular of either of these two entities, and inevitably both of them, then you are not looking at a free market and the resulting bleeding out that occurs in the economy is not the result of free choice, but rather the result of state power. Well, if nothing else, I hope we have at least established the fact that no, we are not living in a free market and that no, no one on the face of the planet is because governments do monopolize the currencies and they do control the interest rates. And with those levers of financial control, anything that happens within that system is inherently already regulated. So to blame this or that on this or that piece of deregulation underlooks the fundamental underlying chains, the control control over the economy, which is inherent in that production of money and in the control of the interest rates. So that, for example, when Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan dropped interest rates down to 1% in the wake of the dot-com bubble bursting, and then all of that money flooded into the housing markets, which were then backed up by government regulation through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then when all of that collapsed and the, uh, the public was on the hook for the hundreds of billions and then the trillions, ultimately, that resulted from the various bailouts and quantitative easing, easing and the hidden inflation tax, which is part of the printing of the money, well, when all of that transpired, people could blame it on the free market and the deregulation if they want, but really it's fundamentally the Federal Reserve propping up and underlying the entire system which makes that possible in the first place. And I think it's important to understand that this doesn't mean that a free market and a free system would mean that no one would ever be would ever be out of money, no one would ever be swindled again. Of course that's not the case. It would be much more a buyer beware type of system. And there would be problems, but at the very least one could say when a financial institution or any type of institution went under in a truly free market, there would be no people uh, there being forced at the point of a gun to pay taxes to bail out these uh, financial institutions. Institutions, they would simply go under. And that's the way a free market would work. And you can argue, and, and there are productive arguments to be had, I'm sure, about whether free markets like that can ever really exist. And maybe the best thing we can do is to have this type of mongrel system we have and, and hope for the best when it comes to regulation. Obviously, I don't agree with that, but I think there is at least some type of debate to be had there. But when the people on the other side of the debate try to, to limit it down and try to reduce it to a simplistic dichotomy between the status quo deregulation, quote-unquote, that we've seen under uh, certain administrations in the past versus the, the even tighter regulation they want, that is a false debate. The debate is really between the regulations that they want versus the, the regulations that the other people want. And meanwhile, the issue of the fundamental underlying regulation of the entire economy upon which everything rests is completely glossed over. 
So in a way, it amounts to basically complaining about the rules of a rigged roulette game without actually addressing the fact that the game itself is rigged, that the uh, the roulette's uh, wheel has actually been weighted, so it will likely land on this or that square. Now, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the, uh, the rules of the game in that system. It, of course, that's ridiculous. Of course, we have to look at the way the roulette uh, wheel has been rigged or the way the dice have been loaded and, uh, and not concentrate on the debate about the rules that uh, result from the rigged game because obviously it's a rigged game and we have to address that fact that underlies it all. And I think that's the important thing to understand, that regulation and the idea of regulation and the idea that government is going to come along and save everything for you is itself a mental trap. And we have tried that for centuries and centuries from the uh, the dawn of the uh, the, the nation state in, in so many ways. The government has always had control over currencies and control over interest rates and control over markets in various ways. So one would imagine that there must be more people out there that would at least be willing Willing to give freedom a try if they were ever able to come to a full understanding of what freedom even means in this economic context. And I hope that the uh, broader point of today's episode also is not lost, that, uh, that certainly regulation in, of all different types of industries only attracts the very people that are supposed to be regulated over, and it becomes a crony system, and that is not by chance, that is not happenstance, that is not a random concatenation of events. It is designed to happen that way because people with criminal minds like to get their hands on the levers of power. So... Perhaps the solution is to take away the levers themselves. And on that provocative note, we'll leave things there for today. I'm your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again for another edition of The Corbett Report next week. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows Captain Lad, everybody got this broken feeling, like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets, everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rope.